through us. Lord, we're amazed by this fact, and Lord, we are awed that you would choose such an ordinary people, such an ordinary means to display your goodness, your justice, your mercy, your compassion. But Lord, we do recognize that we do not display often that same mercy, justice, and compassion. Typically in our sins, and in our sins this past week, we have failed to love you as you have called us to do in Christ. But Lord, we take comfort knowing that we are not forsaken uh, in our sin because we have a Christ who intercedes for us at this present moment, who is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him in repentance and faith. And Lord, it's in that union with Christ that we are able to come before you and that we delight. But Father, we ask now, as your covenanted Christ-united people, we pray earnestly and fervently for those in need. In particular, we think of Pastor Wynn. But we do ask that you would continue to have your sovereign, gracious hand upon him, that you would heal his affliction in whatever capacity that looks like. But we ask that you guide him and direct him, be with him, be with his body. But we ask that you would heal his body through various means of uh, the medical professionals at St. Dominic's and through the various other means that he has through his family uh, and their prayers and also for their encouragement and also their medical expertise as well. Lord, we just ask that you would preserve this precious saint of ours for you have used him for 20 years at this time and Lord, we still need him for another 20 more. Lord, we ask that as you uh, heal him and guide him that you direct him, and that you would build him up, but not only physically, Father, but Lord, that he would count this as a trial set before himself from you, and that he would overcome it in faithfulness and in integrity and in Christ-like humility, knowing that it is through his weakness that your strength is magnified. Father, please be with our servant. Magnify your strength in him through his weakness, and Lord, may he arise in the presence of God this morning as we plan to do so ourselves. Lord, please be with us all now at this time. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect and gracious name. Amen. We will read from Ezekiel chapter 4 this morning, the whole chapter, Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast, out, cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams around it all around. And you, take an iron griddle, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege." And press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. Put the number of the days that you lie on it. You shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So, so long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. 
And when you have completed these, you shall lie a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millets and amer, and put them into a single vessel, and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it, and your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From a day to day you shall eat it, and water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen from day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as barley, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in, the, in, the, in their sight on human dung. And the, Lord, and the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up until now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has uh, tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In our evening services, brothers, we have been going through the book of Ezekiel and have been looking at the prophetic call and ministry of Ezekiel. And we have just come to the actual contents of, of this book, the actual prophetic messages. What we just read in Ezekiel 4 is the beginning of Yahweh's indictment against Israel for their sins against Yahweh. Notably, Ezekiel 4 is a prime example of what biblical scholars call Synax. And that's our title for today, the Synax, uh, part one. These Synax, rather than being a direct message like most prophetic uh, material, these Synax were theatrical acts that the prophet would perform out to convey or signify a message from Yahweh. We could almost think of these Synax as visual aids to to convey the largely audible or spoken messages of the prophets. For this morning, the main message of chapter 4 is to communicate what the siege of Jerusalem would look like. And we have three main components of this message, and these will be our three points for this morning. We have the display, verses 1 to 3, the duration, verses 4 to 8, and the dinner, verses 9 to 17. So the three components of the siege of Jerusalem is the display, the duration, and the dinner. So for our first point, we have the display, verses 1 to 3. The first message that Ezekiel was going to speak on behalf of Yahweh was the siege of Jerusalem. Remember that the primary audience of Ezekiel were exiles from, uh, exiles from Judah and Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah. As exiles in a far-off land, they couldn't just look over and see what was going on in their hometown. Nor, could, nor did they have a direct line of contact from Jerusalem to keep them informed of what was happening after they had been exiled. And at this point in Jerusalem's history, it had already been 
Jerusalem had already been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah, a puppet king, to rule on his behalf. So it was during this turbulent period of warfare and political instability in Jerusalem that Ezekiel would begin his ministry thousands of miles off in Babylon. And the content of Ezekiel's early ministry would deal with Jerusalem in particular, as we will see today and next week. For Ezekiel's homesick audience, for those who long to see and hear a word about Jerusalem, any word from God about Jerusalem would surely be met with eager anticipation. But as we've seen, and as a prophetic messenger, Ezekiel was commissioned to speak God's word, not their word or his word. And God's word to Ezekiel and his audience was a message of judgment against Jerusalem. For this stubborn and rebellious audience that Ezekiel ministered to, Yahweh commanded Ezekiel to use Synax to effectively communicate his message of judgment. In verse 1, Yahweh commands Ezekiel, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. This brick would be closer to a clay tablet resembling a small personal chalkboard rather than like a masonry brick. It would have been more like a chalkboard. But inscribed on this chalkboard was a picture of a town with the name Jerusalem written upon it. We read in verse 2 that Ezekiel put siege works against it and built a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against Jerusalem, that the inscription. Uh, he set camps also against it and plant banner rams all around this inscription. Or maybe it's uh, this idea of him drawing. We, we should understand this as Ezekiel writing or drawing a picture of Jerusalem under siege by foreign powers, which would be later revealed as Babylon. The exiles who would see Ezekiel's performance would understand that Jerusalem is going to be attacked because it is a weakened vassal state. As Zionists, these exiles vainly believed that Jerusalem was going to stand no matter what forces came against it. No matter what, Jerusalem was going to stand. Jerusalem was the city of God. Their, th their theology would never allow Jerusalem to fall by God's hand. But then the dramatic piece of this display would come in at verse 3. And son of man, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. <coughs> and let it be as a state in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Ezekiel would have this iron griddle, which was about the size of another large tablet or a large personal chalkboard, and he would place it between him and the depiction of Jerusalem under siege. We understand that this iron griddle is a barrier between Jerusalem and the prophet and the prophetic word of Yahweh. Furthermore, Ezekiel is to have an angered expression to communicate God's enmity with Israel. Ezekiel was to set his face as a siege against Israel, as a sign of coming war, as a sign of Yahweh coming for war against Jerusalem. At this point in Jerusalem's rebellious history, God's warning for the city, what we're supposed to take away from this, God's warning for the city was over. The iron griddle was placed. The iron wall was established. After all the infidelity to Yahweh and his covenant, after all the continued pleas to repentance, Yahweh would no longer listen, nor would he speak to Jerusalem. 
Yahweh had purposed to curse Israel for their rebellion as he plainly declared in the Mosaic Covenant by a barrier being placed between Jerusalem and the prophetic word and Ezekiel's horrific expression of anger and of judgment, any Israelite should have known that this angered silence of God meant certain doom. The angered silence of God meant certain doom. Finally, notice those for Notice who this message is for. The last sentence in verse 3 says that this display of Jerusalem's siege is a sign for the house of Israel. House of Israel is a general reference to the covenant people or the Jews. What we are to see is that Ezekiel's performance is not a message directly for Jerusalem or even the Judahites. But it's for all of God's covenant people to learn from. For all those Israelites who would see this message or later read about it, this sign was to remind them not to presume upon God's grace as the exiles did, nor for them to be hard-hearted as Jerusalem. These, though it was too late for Jerusalem, these exiles, the audience who, they would, uh, who would be hearing this, the house of Israel, these exiles still had the prophetic word being proclaimed through Ezekiel, through this sign act. By God's mercies, by God's mercy, these Israelites still receive God's word of judgment so that they might repent from their sins and turn from God's coming wrath. By hearing the word, by hearing the word of judgment, these Israelites, those who hear the word, they could repent and turn from God's coming wrath. From this first component of Ezekiel's Sinach of Jerusalem's siege, we are to see that when God stops speaking, that is when we are to be most terrified. When God stops speaking, brothers and sisters, we should tremble. The display of Jerusalem's message, excuse me, the display of Jerusalem under siege was no with no incoming word, would drive home the idea of God's angered silence. Unfortunately, those who desperately need to hear God's word are those who would not listen in the first place, and they would not hear it coming from Yahweh. As in it was for Ezekiel's day, so it is for ours, brothers. I tremble to say this because we have many visitors, but again, as Ezekiel any gospel minister, any minister of the word, anyone who preaches or presumes to preach God's word, we must preach it all. And so visitors, for those who I do not know and who I've only had a friendly welcome with, had some questions. And for brothers and sisters here today, for those who play still in your sin, I have a probing question for you. As in Ezekiel's day, so in ours. There are those who sit among us now, at this moment, who have not professed faith in and allegiance to Jesus Christ. There are those who have grown up in this church and still cling to their sin. There may be visitors or members who come through our doors, who come to church out of a mere obligation to their parents, 
or to a girlfriend or boyfriend, husband or wife. There may be those who are curious about the faith, but haven't made that decision to go all in or not. There are all kinds of people who come in and out of the church, but far too often such individuals come into the church for a time. They play around in our house, brothers, and they end up leaving for, for good because either they grow up or they grow out of the faith. They break up with that girl or guy. They finally get bored with us and move on to something more interesting or satisfying. Brothers, for those who stand in apathetic or outright rebellion against Christ, they come in here, they play around, and once they decide they're done, they are never seen again. Unfortunately, this is the most dangerous spiritual attitude to exist in the modern church. You see, folks like this, they play with repentance. They play with a message of repentance like kittens in a ball of yarn, batting it around with amusement and not taking it seriously. They do not take the personal call to repent as immediate and urgent. But if one refuses to repent and forsakes the hearing of God's word of repentance, of hearing the gospel, brothers, friends, you need to know you are not promised to hear it again. Far too many sinners presume their next day like the exiles presumed Jerusalem's security from God's wrath. They assumed it. Presumption and delay over the message of repentance is the height of folly. And yet, so many of us fall into it. So many sinners clutched into eternity because of folly. Brothers, it is not a ball of yarn to play with. It is a bomb burning down its fuse. God's message of repentance must be heeded. Turn from your sins, brothers and sisters. If there is any wayward way about you, God knows. God sees. Repent. For those who forsake Christ and his gospel, for those who despise the glory of the Son of God incarnate, repent. He will bring condemnation. Brothers, friends, will you finally repent from your sins and turn to the living God? Unless one stops playing with sin and forsaking God's message, you will die in your sin. If you forsake the gospel and its call of repentance from sin, then you will bear the penalty of your sins, which is eternal condemnation. You may never hear this message and call to respond again. Brothers and sisters, friends and family, do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Christ is the God-man who came to save sinners, lived a perfect and righteous life in the sinner's place, and bore the penalty of sin for all those who would repent and trust in his provision. By repenting from your sins and uniting yourself with Christ through faith, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. 
by being united to him. You are called to forsake your sin and rebellion and to live in joyful harmony with your creator. But this joy requires you. It mandates you to kill the sin that you may love now. Friends, this may be the last time you sit under the message of repentance to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. Friends, you know the proper response. Repent and you will live. Don't tinker. Don't play with God's warning. Brothers and sisters, don't play with that secret sin of yours. Repent. Repent. Respond in humbled repentance and turn to the Christ who can save you from your sin. Do not play. Respond in faith, brothers. Unfortunately, Jerusalem did not heed this message and the many calls to repent and turn from God for healing. Jerusalem was presumptuous in its status as the city of God. Jerusalem was the capital city set up by King David himself. Jerusalem was the place of God's earthly abode, the temple, where God's glory was revealed. Yet due to the inhabitants' continued sin, it would not remain the city of God. It would become the city of God's sustained punishment. In Ezekiel 4, verse 4 to 8, we read the next phase of Jerusalem's siege through Ezekiel's sign act. And our focus is now on the duration of the siege of Jerusalem, which is our second point for this evening, the duration of the siege. In verse 4, Yahweh commands Ezekiel, Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. Quite literally, Ezekiel was commanded to lay on his left side, and the idea of his body weight bearing down on his left side would signify the continued pain and discomfort of Jerusalem's coming judgment. Now, this punishment may not seem significant to us, but laying on hard earthen floor on a particular side for a sustained period would have painful and deliberating, debilitating effects. As someone who's a little bit heavyset, every time I have to get on the ground, it's tough, brothers. Imagine being on the ground for a long, sustained period, for days on end, for us who are getting a little bit older. Amen, right? Most likely, Ezekiel was free to move at points throughout the day to prepare his food and other chores involved with the ministry. But we could say his day job would consist of him being in a state of discomfort and agony. And every day that his performance went on, Ezekiel would surely feel greater and greater pain. Ezekiel's pain would incrementally grow with the duration of this performance. In verse 5 and 6, we see the number of days that Ezekiel would have to perform this painful sign act. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long you shall bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down for a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. For a period of 390 days, Ezekiel would be on his left side for Israel. And then for a period of 40 days, Ezekiel will be on his right side, with a grand total of 430 years. 
Many historians have made much fuss over the numbers 390 and 40. They argue that there's no clear date either before or after the fall of Jerusalem that fits into a recognizable pattern. <coughs> no matter what uh, initial event or whatever numbering system uh, these scholars use, we are unable to provide a general or broad period of time in which this dating would be significant. Simply put, brothers, the, the, the beginning or end of Israel and Judah's punishment is impossible to date. However, trying to pinpoint this exact uh, exactly is frustrating. Trying to pinpoint this exact date is frustrating for a variety of reasons, but mainly we should not be dating this 430 period. The 430-year period denotes the kind of curse that, would, that God would bring against God's covenant people, Israel, that Israel would experience. You see, Israel, the northern kingdom, is already gone at this point in history and belongs to the various other world powers. Judah, the southern kingdom, has begun to crumble already and is more or less desolate, but its last holdout of the once great Israelite nation is Jerusalem, the city, the capital. Jerusalem was the last epicenter of Israelite identity and culture. Though they were separate kingdoms for the while, Israel and Judah were still covenantally and culturally bound together. Together they were Israel, the covenant people. Yet all these cultural remains of Israel and Judah were preserved together in the city of Jerusalem. And so when Jerusalem goes, we should understand that as it, it, at that Israel, as the entire covenant people of God, that if, is, if Jerusalem goes, if Jerusalem goes, we should understand that Israel goes with it. Israel was, Jerusalem was the last holdout of their identity. It was the last holdout of the people of God. And so if Jerusalem went, Israel went with it. This is why the punishment of Israel and Judah are joined with the Ezekiel siege of Jerusalem. We are, under, we are to understand Jerusalem as the symbolic stand-in uh, stand for Israel, or God's covenant people. Since Jerusalem is symbolic in its identity, I believe the 433-year number should be read symbolically as well. As we've seen in our study so far, Ezekiel writes with an eye towards the Old Covenant. For the ancient Israelite reading Ezekiel, the period of 430 years would have his mind go back to Exodus 12, our scripture reading for today, where God delivers his people from Israel, or from Egypt, rather. We read in Exodus 12, 40 through 41, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So rather than seeing 430 years as an exact date, I believe that Yahweh is saying that Israel's punishment should be, should be seen as like going back to Egypt. This 430 years is communicating that Israel as a covenant people were being undone. They're being shipped back to Egypt. Moreover, in the covenant curses of Deuteronomy, one of the curses is for Israel to return to Egypt as slaves, Deuteronomy 28, 68. As we'll see later on in Ezekiel and elsewhere in the minor prophets, Egypt, the, the place, the name, was a placeholder for whatever nation that was currently subjugating Israel. 
So in the case of Ezekiel 4, Babylon is acting as the new Egypt. And the 430-year period is a reference to how the Israelites will be treated as, as oppressed slaves by the hands of the Babylonians as they were in Egypt before they were saved by God. Now, this is a good bit of information. It's coming at you kind of, kind of quick, but that's Ezekiel's way. He interweaves allusions all the time throughout his work, and it shows his majesty as a writer. And I know that this is a good bit of info all at once, brothers. But Ezekiel's sign act would allude to Israel becoming slaves as they were in Egypt. The pain and discomfort through their enslavement by the Babylonians would be as horrible as the greatest oppression that Israel knew of in its cultural history. As God does not, and God does not relent, he commands Ezekiel in verse 7 and 8, You shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. While Ezekiel's facing the picture of Jerusalem under siege, we are to understand that the iron griddle is no longer there. Ezekiel's arm is now free from holding the griddle so that his angered expression is fully displayed against Jerusalem and ultimately Israel as a whole. Moreover, Ezekiel is bound with cords over his body to ensure that his position will not change. By securing Ezekiel in this uncomfortable position, God is trying to communicate that Jerusalem and ultimately all Israelites will feel the dismaying effects of their sin, no matter what. Israelites, not just Jerusalem, but Israelites as a whole, they can't get out of this scenario. Because of their persistent rebellion, Israel will not find swift relief. Israel would bear their penalty, and their penalty would be horrific slavery under Babylonian rule, like the slavery under Egypt. Israel, being symbolized by Jerusalem's siege, will feel the full scorn of God's angered expression. They will feel it in full. I could say more on this point, brothers, but I believe it would be better if we understood it in context with our next and final component in Ezekiel's final uh, portion of the sign act, the dinner. The dinner. In verses 9 to 11, Yahweh gives Ezekiel a very specific diet of small portions of wheat and lentil-based bread with a pint of water per day during the 390-year period of Ezekiel's sign act. One possibility for why the text only mentions the 390 number is that the number 40 is a period usually dedicated to things being consecrated, such as Israel in the wilderness and the earth consecrated during the flood. As we have seen, uh, as we can see, this bread was the furthest thing from being consecrated as holy. In verses 12 and 13, Yahweh, com Yahweh commands Ezekiel to bake bread, this bread, this gross bread, in an unusual way so that it communicates Jerusalem's future unclean status. Verse 12, and you shall eat it as barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Children, that is a fancy word for pook. You're welcome. Sorry, Bridget. And the Lord said, 
Thus shall the people of Israel eat their unclean, their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them by baking with human dung or feces. The bread would become unclean or impure. But this unclean meal would become Jerusalem's main diet due to their due to them being forced out into the nations where defilement and ceremonial impurity were the way of life. Even in the eyes of the rebellious Israelites who would see Ezekiel sign at, they would be horrified by what they saw. They understood being ceremonially unclean was equated with being displaced from the promised land, which would be the fate of Jerusalem. They understood what was going on. They understood what was taking place in this vision. Naturally, this command caught Ezekiel's attention because human dung was considered ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. In verse 14, Ezekiel responds, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Being a priest, Ezekiel would know very well the ceremonial laws, and he equates human dung to the other detestable practices of the nations around him, such as eating dead animals. The Lord hears his cry, hears Ezekiel's cry, and changes the prescription so not to disrupt Ezekiel's status as clean. So Ezekiel may use animal dung to cook his bread with, which, let's be honest, it is a major improvement. But even with this change, Yahweh reveals further the particular punishment that Jerusalem would, fa- that would, that Jerusalem would soon face. In verse 16 and 17, we read, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. And I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away in their punishment. The scarce quantity of bread and water that Ezekiel would eat would symbolize the agony of finding food during the siege. And the effects of starvation would set in for inhabitants, for the inhabitants at Jerusalem. Even with Ezekiel's qualms taken into consideration, Yahweh has set his plan of judgment into motion, and Jerusalem will suffer. With this point, it's important to emphasize, brothers, with this point and the prior point, it's important to emphasize that the events depicted in Ezekiel 4 were real, tangible events that would soon be afflicting Jerusalem. We've talked about, uh, uh, much about symbolism today, and I know it's a good bit confusing, uh, just, a, uh, just a flyover reading, but we talked much about symbolism in today's sermon. Though there is much symbolic language to describe Jerusalem's eventual destruction, and that, Jerusalem's, and that Jerusalem acts as a symbol for all the people of Israel, we must never lose sight We must never lose sight that these were real events that would take place in the real world. Jerusalem fall would symbolize the complete judgment of Israel 
but Jerusalem and its inhabitants would still experience real agony in themselves. And at this point, at this same point, goes for Ezekiel's Sinai ministry as well. Though his actions were largely symbolic, Ezekiel's ministry would cost him much physically. For example, Ezekiel was to literally lie on his side for a period of 430 days, and in this period, he would have a very limited and strict diet of lentil wheat bread. This performative act would signify or visually aid the message from Yahweh, but this act would still involve suffering on the part of Ezekiel. Moreover, Ezekiel would suffer by being bound to the floor on one side for long periods at a time. So Ezekiel's Sinax were not only or merely performances to get Israel's minds involved. When dealing with, the, with cursings or judgments, his Sinax were often real, flesh and bone subjugations of the prophet to communicate a greater reality of suffering beyond and behind what was actually taking place. A question that should come to us is why God would command Ezekiel to communicate in this painful way. Why in the world, other than in just God's sovereign omniscience, why in the world does God choose to have Ezekiel communicate his message in this painful and harmful way? Why did Ezekiel have to suffer? Well, we can press this question even further. As we know from Paul and others, it is part of the gospel message to include the sufferings of Christ as the necessary element of God's plan of salvation, such as Acts 17.3. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to die. In our regular morning services, Pastor Wynn has been going through the trials and subjugations of Christ. Christ was mocked, ridiculed, and slandered by both the crowds and the officials in both Jewish and Roman courts. And as he was being prepared for the crucifixion, he was beaten and suffered inhumane physical treatment. At the hands of violent, foolish soldiers, Jesus was being mocked and ridiculed. On this side of the cross, we know that this unique suffering Christ was the divinely intended plan to save sinners from their sins. And Christ's suffering includes all the horrible events and wicked people that Christ endured from the arrest leading, uh, from the arrest leading and culminating all the way to the crucifixion. The arrest and the unjust trials of Jesus, the disdain of the crowds and the officials, the severe physical trauma were all the necessary elements of suffering that culminated in the greatest act of suffering, which is the crucifixion of Christ. And it is by these events of suffering, which climax to the crucifixion, that becomes the foundation for the gospel and our salvation, brothers and sisters. Isaiah plainly summarizes Christ's suffering as salvation in these words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. But with this said, I want us to probe a difficult question. Why did Christ 
have to suffer in this way? I threw a lot out at you, and part of that is me having to write this sermon fairly quickly, and I apologize if it's been a slam of info and just different facts, but brothers and sisters, please come back and ponder this with me. Why did Christ die? Why did he suffer, rather, in this way? Why did Christ suffer physically and emotionally at the hands of courts and soldiers and his own people? For some of you, you may be thinking, how? You just read from Isaiah 53 where it was prophesied that these things would take place. Or you might be able to find other prophecies about Christ's suffering and crucifixion. But I can just press the question further. Why did God reveal the prophecy that God's Messiah would suffer in this way? Why this suffering? Why did God reveal things about Christ's suffering in this way? Why did God choose to have Christ suffer under Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and so many others? For the theologically snooty, you may say, how? It was the covenant of redemption. God the Father and God the Son made an eternal pact between one another, an agreement that the Son would take on the penalty of sin, which is suffering and death. For God's elect and the Father would give the people to the Son as a reward for his obedience. There, boom, answered it theologically. How about that? Yes, amen. Christ had to be the one to save us from the penalty of sins. He's the only one who can. But why did Christ's suffering look the way it did? We can't get past this question. Why did Christ's suffering look the way it did? Why did the Father's plan of redemption make it so, make it to where Jesus had to be born in first century Palestine? Why couldn't Jesus satisfy, satisfy God's justice against sin in another time period or under different circumstances? Why didn't the gospel come in 17th century France? Ever had that question before? Maybe the first time? Hope so, because this is getting good. Why didn't the gospel come in 17th century France? Rather than a crucifixion, cr crucifixion, why not a guillotine? Rather than being mocked by Jewish crowds, why not French crowds? Rather than Pontius Pilate or the Sanhedrin, why couldn't he be charged by King Louis XVI? This may sound silly to you, but this is an actual legitimate question that scholars have really pondered over for many years. We know Christ had to suffer and die for the salvation of his people. Suffering, misery, and death is the penalty of sin, a penalty of sin against God. And Christ was the only one who could satisfy God's justice by his righteousness through perfect obedience. But still the question comes, why suffer? Why suffer in this way? I want to suggest this, brothers. Christ's suffering are recorded for us in the Gospels as sign acts for us. They were performative for us. They were given for us. By looking at the physical, emotional sufferings of Christ, we can better understand the spiritual suffering that Christ underwent. 
when we meditate upon the cross, when we hear of Christ's horrible suffering, that suffering should point us to something else. The crucifixion, which is the culmination of Christ's suffering, is the display of God's holy justice. As one who despises sinners and their rebellion, which we have clearly seen in, in Ezekiel this morning, God must satisfy his justice, and he will punish the sinner for their rebellion. But the most horrific punishment of God is not physical, but spiritual, brothers. Upon the cross of Christ, we see the display of God's greatest act of judgment. We see the Christ forsaken by the Father. In the heights of his suffering, Christ is counted as enemy, and God removes his benevolent fellowship from him, though the Son remains the Son. Yes, the physical sufferings were severe and harsh, but they merely pointed to the greater spiritual reality of being forsaken by God himself. The arrest, the false trials of the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate and Herod, the mocking and beating and flogging, the walk to, Gol to Golgotha, the jeers of the crowds, the abandonment of his friends, the actual crucifixion, brothers, these events were merely the prologue of the far greater agony of God's rejection and disdain of Christ Jesus in our place. These events surrounding the suffering that Christ underwent act as a symbol for the true importance of the cross. These sufferings pointed to the greater suffering of Christ. Brothers, Christ's physical sufferings were God's chosen means to communicate what enmity with him looks like. Enmity with God looks like derision, mocking, flogging, crucifixion, bloody palms, bloody head, bloody forehead, disdain, cruelty, rejection. He suffered, but he suffered for our sake to help us understand what he truly put upon himself. The punishment that Christ bore for us was not merely physical brothers. That was a foretaste of what was truly happening upon that cross. On that cross, though the Son still remained the Son, Christ the God-man bore God's wrath for you and for me. The enmity of God, the enmity that must be punished, Christ took on himself. Brothers and sisters, I know I've slammed you with information. I know it's been a bit disheveled. Forgive me, I am tired. But there is one fact that the Christian church must ponder more. God Christ himself did not save us from a pulpy mess. Christ saved us from the enmity of God. He became the provision for us. He became the substitute for us. Christ's physical sufferings were God's chosen 
chose a means to communicate what enmity with him looked like. As it was for Ezekiel's suffering to be God's chosen means to communicate far greater truths about Israel and Jerusalem. Christ's suffering is God's chosen means to communicate the terror of one being an enemy of God. For those who reject Christ, this same enmity awaits them in judgment. The same punishment and derision that we see only pictured there upon the cross will be met in full in condemnation. But for those who will turn from their sins and trust in Christ's perfect obedience for them, we have no reason to fear, brothers. By union with Christ, your enmity with God has become a perfect and loving fellowship with your God. Your offense has been settled by Christ's suffering and his death for you upon that cross. And God the Father welcomes you. He welcomes even you, O former enemy of God, to him. Your offense has been settled. And the Father welcomes you home. Brothers, as we think upon the cross in these next reflective moments, for those who are in Christ Jesus, I ask you, please, ponder the cross of Christ more. What happened there? What happened? Enmity with God was broken and fellowship was renewed. Brothers, even if we are led through the same physical suffering and the same physical horror that Christ underwent, we will never know his spiritual suffering if we have faith in him. Brothers, because of Christ, we will never know the complete separation from God and his benevolence and his fellowship, and his love. Brothers and sisters, if you have repented from your sins and have turned to Christ in faith, you have fellowship. You have fellowship with him. You have fellowship with one another. And brothers and sisters, let us ponder that sweet, sweet fellowship in light of the enemy that we once were. Let us pray.